0: Welcome to another episode of the TDC Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Brad Burge, the Director of Communications at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. MAPS is one of the leading organizations working on MDMA in psychedelic research. So we talked about the MDMA for PTSD studies, how support for this research has changed over time, and what progress is likely to be realized in the coming years. As always, TDC is supported exclusively by donations, so if you want to support Support, you can find ways to do so at the support. I'm sure everybody listening has probably heard of MAPS, considering it's the largest organization I'm aware of working in psychedelic therapy, and it's almost single handedly pushing forward MDMA legalization for medical uses and researching MDMA, but can you introduce us to MAPS, what the organization is, what its goal is? Yeah, more than happy to, Seth, and uh, thanks so much for having me on The Drug Classroom.
1: Uh, real pleasure to be here. You're doing great work. So the MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, kind of a mouthful, which is why we go with MAPS. Um, we are a nonprofit, that's a 501c3, research and educational organization. So there's a lot of things that MAPS is doing beyond just clinical trials research. We do public education around drugs and their uses, a lot like you're doing. Uh, we do um, policy work and advocacy uh, to help facilitate research um, and beneficial uses of psychedelics and cannabis. We also do harm reduction. So we have a service called the Zendo Project, which we take to Burning Man and other festivals and events around the world to provide psychedelic peer support for people who are having difficult psychedelic experiences. So we really try to address all aspects of psychedelics and cannabis from their benefits all the way to their risks. our, our, our main focus right now is moving MDMA through the FDA drug development clinical trial process and working towards making MDMA-assisted psychotherapy a legal prescription treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder by 2021. So we're moving into those phase three trials this year uh, with the FDA and, and expecting approval by, by 2021. So a lot has changed in the last 30 plus years. MAPS was founded in 1986 by my boss, our current executive director and founder, Rick Doblin, as a direct response to the criminalization of MDMA in 1985, and, and since then has just slowly um, faster and faster now. Um, it seems like we're growing kind of ex- exponentially uh, right now. Um, slowly built MAPS into a fairly large organization. Now that I think about it, when I started in 2011, we had about six people or seven people on our staff. And now we have well over 30 people working full time, plus all of our various contractors and independent researchers and so on. So things are happening really fast right now.
0: Back in the 1980s, when MAPS started, it was focused on MDMA and still is. But the position from regulators has changed drastically, it seems. Like when I was researching the early history of MDMA for some MDMA-related content that I put out on TDC, the way that the DEA or FDA was viewing MDMA, even though medical uses were known at the time, the trials were not like they are nowadays, but there were therapists testifying in favor of MDMA and definitely against it being a Schedule One drug which would just totally stop the emerging therapeutic use, the regulators just viewed it entirely differently as far as I can tell. And now we're seeing the FDA go as far as not only allowing it, but saying it's a breakthrough therapy. So how has the regulatory position changed?
1: It's been huge. Just like you're saying, you know, back in um, the well, let me kind of take a bigger step back. So originally, MDMA and LSD and other psychedelics, their, their first uses were actually uh, therapeutically. Um, when they first became popular, they were of great interest to psychotherapists. And just looking at MDMA as an example, throughout the late 1970s to the early 1980s, really throughout the 70s until the early 1980s, MDMA was uh, starting to really catch on in the psychiatric, the psychotherapeutic. Community, and they were using it to treat patients uh, with post traumatic stress disorder, addiction, anxiety, depression. Um, MDMA was being used for couples counseling and for a lot of different purposes. But at that time, MDMA still had not been explored in clinical trials, it had never been through double blind, randomized controlled. Trials, So it was all just case studies and um, people kind of on their own experimenting with it. So at that time, regulators really had nothing, nothing at all to do with it, with MDMA, that is. And then, of course, it caught on and became labeled as ecstasy, became a popular club drug and was criminalized. So at that point, there hadn't been any research, uh, even though there were a lot of case studies and individual reports from therapists and patients saying, hey, this stuff could be useful, there wasn't any data that the FDA or other uh, government regulatory agencies could look at. So when the DEA moved to criminalize MDMA, all they had to rely on was these individual case reports. And of course, there were a lot from very respected psychiatrist Charlie Grobe, who's, who's now a researcher, David Nichols, who um, was at Purdue at that time and is one one of the world's most well-recognized experts on psychedelic psychopharmacology. Rick Doblin was there. A lot of therapists were there, and and they all testified. And actually, at that time, the, the DEA's administrative law judge, Francis Young, ruled that MDMA should not be made a Schedule 1. It should be made Schedule 2 or Schedule 3 so that therapeutic use could continue and so that research could continue. But at the time, the DEA administrator, who was all embroiled in politics and the politics of the drug war in particular, ignored that advice from the DEA's own judge and made it a Schedule One drug. At that time, you know, re- regulators weren't even looking at uh, protocols for the beneficial uses of of psychedelics. When researchers would submit a um, research application, uh, it would just kind of disappear. It would fall into the trash bin, or uh, just researchers wouldn't get a response. And that was the case up until the mid-1990s. I think, actually, maybe the early 1990s, 1992, is when a big change happened at the FDA, and the FDA decided to start considering psychedelic therapy clinical trials as part of their regular process. It was part of uh, an internal move that the FDA made to try to develop uh, treatments that um, were hard to research and that, that showed a potential large benefit. So starting in the mid-1990s, the FDA actually started being willing to consider these research protocols. There was some research at the University of New Mexico by Rick Strassman into DMT. Um, he was just administering DMT to human subjects, and that was the first approved clinical trial uh, with psychedelics, probably since the 1950s, when the U.S. military was was looking at them. And now we have um, just a great relationship with the FDA. I think it's very tempting, you know, especially for people who are familiar with the war on drugs and familiar with the long history of the government's criminalization of of drugs and the misinformation and propaganda that circulated for so many decades. It's tempting to look at the government as this monolithic entity. This is one big government that is preventing research from happening and just doesn't want to see it happen. That's actually, it's really very much not the case. The FDA is one thing. The DEA is another thing. Ethics boards are another thing. The Department of Justice is another thing. I mean, even these days, the DEA and Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, can't agree on things. So really, we're not looking at this monolithic thing. And the FDA has just been extremely supportive of the work that we're doing, the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD research, uh, also psilocybin research, which other organizations are now working on. And the FDA is very supportive. Provides helpful feedback on the protocols. We hear back from them quickly. So we've developed this great relationship with regulators at the FDA. And the DEA is actually the same. There's two different kind of. There's at least two different kind of groups within the DEA. And one is the the uh, part of the DEA that. Goes after medical marijuana patients and um, actually enforces federal marijuana law and federal drug laws. And then there's the DEA that's responsible for regulating research with scheduled drugs. And so the field offices that we work with, with the DEA, they come around to the various trial sites and make sure that the safe is there and it's the right brand and it's secure enough and it's bolted to the floor and there's enough uh, locks in between the street and the storage of the drugs. And we've got a great relationship with them as well. We've had very little problems um, obtaining the Schedule One licenses for the various research sites with the DEA as well. So just really great cooperation from the federal government there.
0: How costly is it to have to comply with those additional schedule one steps that go along with research compared to if you are working with a say a schedule three drug you do hear about these somewhat absurd seeming requirements like the the safe bolted to the floor to contain three grams of a drug and, and, and it's a little bit silly if you're trying to get a substance as somebody in the illicit market you're probably not going to break into a maps (laughs) therapy center in order to get it you could probably find it elsewhere so how costly is it to maps to have to to go along with these
1: well, a great question, Seth. You know, it varies depending on the research site. Um, we have some research sites at um, academic research institutions, like for the phase three trials, NYU is one. And and for places like that, they, they have places to store scheduled drugs because they do research on a regular basis. And there it's, it's it's not so difficult. But we also have a lot of private practice sites. They're just therapist's offices. And we have to do a lot of work to, to set those up. And it can vary from a few thousand dollars for a for a fancy safe to tens of thousands of dollars for you know double bolted doors and alarms on the windows and and all sorts of things for, again like you're saying for a very very small amount so you're handling nuclear
0: material you'd think <laughs> yeah yeah you you'd think so i would seem one of the barriers to getting this research to be accepted and for regulators to go along with it even though now things are are moving forward steadily is that drug facilitated therapy psychotherapy really hasn't been a thing in mainstream psychiatry even though it's been a part of the psychedelic side of things or even more fringe not so fringe at times if you go back far enough but the idea of using everything from MDMA to psychedelics to sedatives to facilitate a therapy session like it's just not a thing That therapists usually think about doing usually you have either non-drug psychotherapy or you have a daily medication are therapists at all hesitant when they hear about this this idea of giving somebody something in order to make a session more insightful and, and beneficial or is there not much hesitation even though it's not typically something that a therapist would do there's
1: you know I'm blown away on a daily basis by how little, um, little resistance there is to this work among the psychotherapeutic and just the general clinical mental health treatment field. The therapists that I know, the therapists that come to MAPS, they, uh, uh therapists that work with the Department of Veterans Affairs, they are just beating their heads against brick walls when it comes to the treatment of PTSD. And these are the people who sit with patients for months or years or decades trying to do psychotherapy with them, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work for a lot of people. And the idea that a drug could assist that process especially a drug that's known for increasing feelings of compassion and empathy and openness and trust, it makes a lot of sense to them. People are really just coming out of the woodwork, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, marriage and family therapists, all across the board. We get dozens of emails and phone calls and Facebook messages and tweets like every single day people asking to get involved with this research as as therapists never mind the people who are reaching out actually asking for the treatment so yeah it's been really encouraging to see the treatment field coming out in support And it's it's one of the things that's most exciting for me about what we're doing. Certainly the research is positioned in a way that once MDMA is approved, MDMA is going to have to be rescheduled. Psilocybin will have to be rescheduled once it it has medical approval from the FDA. And in that way, we're destabilizing the whole logic behind the war on drugs, which, which says that these drugs can only be used for nefarious, evil, harmful purposes, and they can't be used in any beneficial way. So we're proving that wrong. And that's all very exciting. But for me, the most exciting thing is that we're developing the first new class of psychiatric drug in decades and introducing that into mainstream practice. And that's extremely exciting. You know, we have anti-anxiety medications, we have benzodiazepines, we have antipsychotics, we have antidepressants, we have opioids and related painkillers, we have Adderall, we have these amphetamine class stimulants that are now um, being used widely in psychiatry. But all of these are administered on a daily basis. They have to be taken every single day in order to be effective. And for many people, they still aren't effective. And for all that time, people have to deal with the side effects the entire time they're taking them. Here we have a new class of drug, the psychedelic drug class, of course MDMA, LSD, psilocybin. A lot of these drugs don't have anything chemically to do with each other or very little chemically to do with each other. And we're bringing this whole new class, this whole new toolbox, really, for psychiatrists. PTSD in particular is a major problem with psychotherapy because with PTSD and these traumatic events that happen, people often struggle to share details about those events. It's, it's hard to just think back and remember these memories, which are often the most terrifying memories people have had in their entire lives. And, so, and that's why psychotherapy can be so difficult often for people because they don't trust themselves to share the material, they don't trust their therapists, and and, and so they shut down when trying to share. So no matter how good the psychotherapy is, often people just just won't go there with the memories. And so bringing in the drug, it opens up that window, it enables psychotherapy to be more effective. Um, So all of that is very appealing to people who are treating people with PTSD and other mental health conditions not to mention the fact that the way we're looking at this this treatment it's, it's only taken two or three times in order to have just incredibly beneficial effects and there's just so much so much suspicion i think of the mainstream for-profit pharmaceutical industry right now between the opioid epidemic, the overprescription of antidepressants, and so on. There's just a lot of willingness, a lot of eagerness from patients and from therapists alike to have a new class of drugs and a new way of approaching mental illness.
0: It probably helps that the limitations of regular psychotherapy are now really obvious because we've had decades where even as new treatment modalities come out, whether it's CBT or DBT or different sort of ways of processing a trauma or getting over a fear or getting over depression, even though those new models come out, the rate at which people respond to psychotherapy is kind of stagnant. And there's this whole group of people who don't respond and they end up just being pushed to a daily medication. And then still, sometimes it doesn't fix their issue. It would seem the only way then to improve, it's probably not going to be that you have some new CBT-like model that comes out for interacting with people if you just say the right thing or induce the right state through speaking to somebody that you can get anybody to change. That probably won't be what the fix is, but rather changing the therapeutic connection and how deep somebody can go in a therapy session. And that is very amenable to pharmacology. So you get this nice blending of the benefits of not having to take something every day, but having when you do take something or go and deal with your trauma or your condition in a therapeutic setting that you get more out of your time, you hear about people describing it as 20 years of psychotherapy in one session, people have a hard enough time opening up to people they have relationships with. So going to a psychotherapist is not always a very welcoming thing. I mean, people are pushed there because... They need something to change, but becoming open and even sometimes being aware of what the source of their condition is, is not it's not easy to do that as a patient, and there's only so much you can do as a therapist if you're relying on the patient to give insight. So drugs, even though they're not the typical thing, have this great ability to enhance what a, a patient can do and therefore what a therapist can do for the patient. So it's just a very interesting and encouraging kind of therapy.
1: It sure is. You know, And a lot of the resistance that we do get is just from people who misunderstand. We're you know, so used to seeing pharmaceutical ads. You know, we hear pharmaceutical drugs, or we hear big pharma, or we hear psychiatric drugs. And often the assumption is, well, of course, people are just taking this drug every
0: day. Well, because that's how drugs work, right? It's 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 not how drugs work. <laughs> yeah, you're now dependent on it. You know, every time that you have the talk about a drug, it's always with addiction and dependence as the unavoidable side effect.
1: Yeah, and so when we when when we break the news to people, you know, no, 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 really, really though, they're not taking this every day. This is only to assist psychotherapy, and it's only done a few times. That's when most of the resistance evaporates when we're talking to people. Um, because that's a totally new way of of, of thinking about drugs. Also, you know, people will say, you know, patients especially, or rather participants in the clinical trials will say, you know, this this treatment blows every other treatment I've tried out of the water. Or people are like, this is so much better than just standard psychotherapy or things like that. But actually, you know, what we're looking at with psychedelic therapy isn't even replacing cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive processing therapy or cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, which is psychotherapy for couples or for partners. You know, we're, we're looking at these drugs as ways to assist these other forms. So MAPS right now is looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. The psychotherapy part is actually very important. And the psychotherapy that MAPS is using uh, is, is from a, a, a treatment manual, which, which we've developed over many years of doing this research, and we're constantly refining The treatment manual is actually available on maps.org slash treatment manual. You can download it. Anybody can access it for free. That treatment approach combines a lot of different standard psychotherapy forms, including cognitive behavioral therapy, internal family systems, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR. So all of these existing uh, psychotherapeutic
0: techniques are part of the process. The drug is just there to Make them more effective. Getting to the drug itself, for maps and and really the psychedelic psychotherapy field as a whole, MDMA has been the superstar, and it's had the most success in part because it's just been researched the most. Why is that? Is it for? Is it because the drug is uniquely beneficial for these conditions? Is it because it's been easier to work with because it doesn't have the fireworks and the confusion that can come with with a regular psychedelic like LSD? What is the reason why it has stood out? out the most and been such a focus for MAPS?
1: I I think there's, there's cultural reasons that MDMA has been so successful in the research, and then there's also sort of pharmacological reasons. Culturally, certainly, MDMA is already widely known as ecstasy. The word ecstasy gets headlines, even though most ecstasy doesn't actually even have MDMA in it these days. I think it's less than half of it actually has real MDMA in it. But ecstasy gets the headlines, um, because of its popularity as a recreational drug. Certainly that. You know, also, MDMA is a synthetic drug or a, rather a semi-synthetic drug, which means that it, it can be made from uh, naturally occurring materials, but is often just completely artificially synthesized based on petroleum products, actually, and just like most drugs are, are, are made these days. It's not naturally occurring. So like psilocybin or cannabis, for example, um, and that makes it very amenable to the FDA drug development process. Um, The whole system, the FDA process is set up really for individual molecules to be explored, to be developed to be approved and ultimately to be patented. Of course, MDMA can't be patented because it was first made in 1912 and it's way out of patent and it can't be done. Uh, MAPS will have control over, or rather be the only organization to be able to market and distribute it for the first five to seven years after it's approved, just because of an FDA rule around new drugs being developed for the first time. But after that, it'll be a generic drug and anybody, that is any company um, with a license, will be able to manufacture and distribute it. So MDMA is a synthetic or a semi-synthetic drug, which really fits the FDA drug development model. But what is MDMA? So MDMA, you know, I think the main reason the results have been so successful is because you, know, you really couldn't, it'd be very hard to imagine or develop a drug that is so perfectly suited to addressing PTSD symptoms. It's, it's almost like the experience of being on MDMA is like the opposite of having PTSD. They're almost opposites. So what do I mean by that? So MDMA works on the serotonin system. Uh, it also works on the dopamine system. MDMA prompts the release of these drugs, or these, these compounds in the brain that are already there. It doesn't take the place of them so much. It's just like, I think of MDMA going into the brain and then squeezing the brain like a sponge. So it squeezes out all of these naturally occurring neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine among them. So serotonin is associated with uh, memory and attention. You kind of get this this kind of flood of attention and ability to focus on things for a a long period of time, also um, kind kind of enhancing memory. People find that their memory for emotions and experiences is improved with MDMA, also dopamine mean is this 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 kind of reward signaling compound in the brain when we do something that's successful or we beat a video game or we feel like we've accomplished something or we finished our homework or we're it's friday afternoon it's this feeling of of yay i've accomplished something this feeling of i'm doing something right and so mdma prompts the release of this i'm doing something right feeling so people are able to focus on these just like really difficult really messy emotionally intense therapy sessions for a really long time and these therapy sessions are six to eight hours long. It can be hard to
0: focus otherwise for that long. And you also get the boost in norepinephrine, which could help with arousal and, and having these memories or the therapy itself actually provide a lasting benefit because you could get somebody to have an easier time processing some of these things or talking about these memories with say a sedative, but because of the pharmacology of those, it seems conceivable that the lasting nature of that therapy session would be reduced because it's not really, it's not facilitating memory and attention in the way that just kind of reducing anxiety, but not enhancing these other aspects that would go along with having a a truly beneficial therapy session. And it contributes to what I've seen talked about as an optimal arousal level and sort of maintaining people at the perfect state, although it's not anxiety-free or stress-free, of being engaged but not having too much of a barrier.
1: Yeah, it creates this really interesting chemical soup kind of situation um, in the body where people are very aroused and alert and awake and focused and attentive and articulate, but at the same time, very relaxed. And the norepinephrine certainly might have something to do with that. Also, the other hormones that it releases, oxytocin and prolactin and um, probably a bunch of other hormones um, that are naturally occurring in the body um, and are associated with these feelings of trust and intimacy and bonding. So I think about um, the post-orgasmic state um, or um, oxytocin and, and, and prolactin are very uh, present in, in nursing mothers and are um, part of what's responsible for this feeling of like, wow, I just, I just really love this, this, this tiny infant that's suckling at my breast. And, you know, this is like, it's a very, this strong feeling of connection. And of course, when in a therapy session, that, that feeling of connection and trust and intimacy gets applied to the therapists, it's like, wow, these people are, you know, they, they, they've really got my back. I can, I can, I can share stuff with them. And then, that's also reflected inward too for the therapy process like wow i i really trust myself to be able to go in and deal with these difficult emotions this feeling of deep trust and then actually my personal favorite with mdma just because it's so clear and the science around it is so clear is that mdma turns down activity in the amygdala. So the amygdala, for those who don't know, the part of the brain associated with um, fear and arousal. It's the fight-or-flight center of the brain, and people with PTSD, the amygdala is often hyperactivated. So a memory comes up in the brain, a difficult memory, and and it goes through the amygdala, and the amygdala labels that memory, this is terrifying, be afraid, or this experience, this is terrifying, be afraid, run away, or get ready to defend yourself. And that's how it's interpreted. So with MDMA, actually turning down the amygdala, just turns down the volume on that, you can get these difficult, very intense emotions coming through the amygdala, and they're not signaled like that. And people can say, oh, wow, this is this is the most terrifying thing that ever happened to me and this is how it affected me and they can talk about it calmly and coolly. Absolutely essential for processing trauma in psychotherapy for, for PTSD. So there's just this just turning down the volume on the amygdala and that's why I say that MDMA and PTSD are almost opposite is that you get this hyperactivation with PTSD and then this down activation of, of anger and
0: fear with MDMA. And putting some stats on this, the first major study which was published in 2011 had a an 80 80- three percent rate of getting people to having no longer the necessary criteria for PTSD. And even further, that study also had a very long-term follow-up at the scale of over a year, showing that these, these sessions had a truly lasting benefit, which although you have this perfect soup, as you described it, acutely, that only lasts for a short time. So the fact that you could have a, a session where once people revert to their normal neurological state, they're still maintaining the benefits from the session is impressive and probably poorly understood how a session could be that impactful for reframing memories and having that stick.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. That, that first study, um, that was our, our first completed study um, with the 83% who no longer had PTSD after just three sessions. That long-term follow-up was uh, actually 3.8 years. So al- almost four years later, those results were, st- were still holding. We did have a couple of people, and, and this is common with these studies, we did have a couple of people who relapsed after that. So, so right after their treatment sessions, they didn't have PTSD anymore. But then over time, those kind of came back for people or in some cases, um, just, you know, life keeps happening. People can get re-traumatized. New things can happen. The MDMA therapy doesn't, doesn't prevent that f- from happening. So we did have some people relapse, and we were actually able to get permission from the FDA to administer another session to those two people from the, that, that first study. So just one more session and then once again that one more session was able to again leave them at a place of not having ptsd so it looks like for some people you know just two sessions is enough for some people three sessions some people might ultimately need like a session every year for a little while you know it's going to vary very widely depending on the person but the research that we're doing now is just looking at the two or three two or three sessions so we have all sorts of psychological models for how that might be working how that long term uh, those long-term results just stay but we you're absolutely right. We we, we don't have um, a pharmacological or a neurological explanation for for how for how that's happening.
0: And one of the encouraging things is that the first study focused on people with a, a variety of causes of PTSD, including sexual assault and childhood abuse, whereas the latest study was on veterans and first responders. So it seems like PTSD caused by probably any condition is. Is treatable with this kind of therapy.
1: Yeah, that's that's what it looks like. We've had sexual assault survivors and survivors of natural disasters and firefighters and police officers. We had a 9/11 first responder, military veterans, of course, um, veterans with PTSD from military combat also from sexual assault while in the military, which is all too common. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a link between um, the effectiveness of the treatment and the cause of the PTSD.
0: Going almost completely against what the recreational side of MDMA use encourages at times, the ideal dose seems to be only around 75 or 100 milligrams in these studies. And that, for a lot of MDMA users, would be sort of surprising because people are so used to taking 150 or, or 200 or even <laughs> more if you're in the UK or some. In place that thinks hundreds of milligrams is a good idea, but it probably speaks to perhaps the benefit of keeping people as close to normal functioning as possible while getting the the anxiety reduction and the increased openness, but you don't want people to be just blasted out of their minds, which is often the goal of recreational use, because I think anybody who's used in in intactogens, including MDMA, can speak to the common doses around that amount not really being impairing, but it can rapidly become more sort of you have memory lapses and, and you can get kind of some hallucinatory activity starting to creep in, but none of that seems beneficial. So it's important, I think, to highlight that we're not talking about taking the way that people use it in a festival setting and just throwing that into now a therapeutic setting and keeping everything the same, but rather really targeting a specific kind of effect that MDMA can provide at yeah. this lower this lower dose.
1: Yeah, that's it's really necessary for FDA approval to really dial in on what doses are being recommended. For the phase... Three trials, which we're starting this fall, um, we're looking at two different dosages. One, um, uh, we're looking at 80 milligrams and 120 milligrams. So those are actually fairly comparable. Um, you know, around 100, 125 is sort of comparable to a standard recreational dose or what's thought to be a standard uh, recreational dose. Um, and of course, comparing those 80 and 120 with placebo. In the studies, we also give participants an option of following up one or two hours later after their first dose with another supplemental half dose. So if somebody were to get 80 milligrams, they'd later have the option of taking another 40 milligrams, or if they got 120, they'd get the option to take 60. And what that does is not increase the um, amplitude of the effects, so it it doesn't make the um, effects of the MDMA more intense. Um, but rather extends the effects, or extends this um, therapeutic window, as we call it, where they can do this psychotherapeutic work. And I also want to go back to something you said earlier, Seth, is, is um, you know the, the question you asked about, you know what is it about MDMA that makes it you know so appealing at a cultural level, and why has it been so successful? And the other thing that you're pointing to is the general absence of hallucinations with, with MDMA um, psilocybin and LSD um, certainly DMT can be um, really scary for, for people who aren't experienced with them um, because the hallucinations can be so intense. They can take you right out of your body. You can have powerful vi- um, visual or auditory or tactile gustatory sensations. And and those might be distracting um, for, for therapeutic work with, with MDMA. So we, um, think that MDMA has also been effective for that reason, that sort of catching on is because it's not quite as scary from the point of view of the ego (laughs) as as some of these these other drugs. Uh, Also, it's interesting to compare MDMA with um, the psilocybin research that's been happening. So just briefly, the psilocybin research for um, treatment of anxiety and depression is finding an association between the um, feelings of sort of mystical states or mystical experiences, out-of-body Experiences, sort of feelings of connection with the divine, essentially um, powerful hallucinations, that there's an association with psilocybin between those hallucinations and the therapeutic effects. So there's something having to do, do with recovery, um, working with anxiety and addiction and depression that may actually be helped by some of those effects. With MDMA and PTSD, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, There doesn't seem to be an association between people having a so-called mystical experience with MDMA and getting better with PTSD. So... Clearly, these drugs are working in
0: different ways, even to assist psychotherapy. Is the thought that some of those classic psychedelics will end up being better for some conditions than MDMA is? Or or do you think MDMA, mm-hmm. once it moves, once it's approved for PTSD, could show a lot of efficacy in these other conditions like depression, anxiety, you know, social anxiety, and et cetera? Based
1: on the case reports from the last many decades MDMA is likely to have other beneficial uses too: um, depression, anxiety, addiction, alcoholism. There's a new study of MDMA treatment for alcoholism about to get started in the UK, for example. Um, absolutely. But that would have to need to be, um, that would need to be explored a lot more, but from, what it seems so far, yeah. Some of these drugs are going to be better for certain conditions than others. Um, some are going to be at the, the therapeutic aspect or the psychotherapy is going to be more important, and for others, it's going to be it's it's going to be less important. This is just what scientists are just starting to tease apart
0: right now. Does it seem like for other drugs that Maps is interested in, like? I mean, one that really stands out would be Ibogaine, considering there's so much talk about opioid addiction right now and Ibogaine based on, you know, the reports from clinics, but not necessarily a bunch of very high quality studies. It seems to be useful in that condition, but because it's fairly unknown, I would think, compared to MDMA or psychedelics in the US, is there kind of a greater barrier for getting movement on a drug like that just because they may not be aware of it? Almost nobody in the public is aware of Ibogaine compared to, say, People have heard of ecstasy and they've heard of LSD. Yeah, comparatively.
1: Yeah, there's certainly that educational barrier. Fewer people know about ibogaine. There is also um, the significant fact that, that ibogaine, when it's administered in places where it's legal but unregulated, so Mexico and New Zealand are two of those places, um, it um, tends not to be consistent from uh, treatment center to treatment center. Ibogaine is really the, the alkaloid that is extracted from iboga. Um, And it's extracted in a variety of different ways, and so it can have a variety of different potencies and a variety of different, um, you know, additional compounds uh, floating around in it. So part of the challenge of researching ibogaine is finding a consistent supply. So you don't have one scientist in one place doing research with one batch, another scientist doing research with another batch. They come together to compare their results, and it turns out they were looking at different drugs. So we have to be very careful with that, as well as with ayahuasca. It's exactly the same situation for ayahuasca, and very similar for, for cannabis research, too. How do we do cannabis research, ensuring that there's going to be a consistent supply? With MDMA, it's very easy, um, because it's just a single Molecule. Even the psilocybin research, they're using synthetic psilocybin, so they're not even using whole, um, whole psilocybin mushrooms, which have all of these other alkaloids in it, which may or may not impact how the psilocybin is, um, how the psilocybin works in the brain. Ibogaine is d- difficult for that reason. It looks, um, you know, it, it looks like ibogaine is also a. Um, it, it may have higher risks than than some of these other psychedelics. It looks like there may be about one in 300 people that um, have gone through ibogaine therapy, experience fatalities. Uh, now, we don't know why that is. We don't know. Uh, it's probably not because of the drug itself, but it's probably because the people who are going into ibogaine treatment for opioid addiction in particular tend to have weakened cardiovascular systems and weakened neurological systems and have other things going on and just be a generally
0: higher risk population. So there's a lot more sort of basic research. Or even if the drug has some toxicity, Concerns you could better control that once you do the research and find out there's probably a dose where you can get the benefits with without that kind of toxicity, and especially when the rate is already so low that those cases could be coming out of just the unregulated sort of Very nature much. of the industry and people are being exposed to variable amounts and mm-hmm. and it
1: depends on the level of medical care they're getting too.
0: So if you have like proper monitoring and better research into the dosing, then perhaps you could stamp out some of those. Concerns, Which, of course, also speaks to the benefit of having a drug not be in Schedule 1 so you can do those necessary preclinical and clinical studies to figure out how to use these drugs safely and if you even can. That's right. I really think that the popularity and the
1: success of the MDMA and psilocybin trials is, is helping draw a lot of attention to the Ibogaine research and the potential for Ibogaine therapy for addiction. Um, If it weren't for these kind of higher profile projects, the MDMA and psilocybin, I think I would be a lot further behind with Ibogaine and ayahuasca.
0: Looking at the community level and the communication level for talking about these substances and the therapy, are there any challenges with some of the beliefs and topics that are focused on in, a, in the psychedelic community, which obviously is a huge base of support for these medicines, but also, you know, whenever there's a group of people who are focused on psychedelics and they're talking, there can be, from my experience, a, an easy wading into some controversial and perhaps pseudoscientific ideas. And as an organization that is really focused on science, and obviously you have to work with the FDA, which is, you know, has science as its top priority, is there an issue with where all this support is coming from or, or concerns about the association? Uh, you know, is there a, a desire to distance what maps is doing from the way that not really with MDMA, but with LSD and psilocybin how some of the classic supporters talk about these these substances? Or is it not really much of a concern?
1: Well, you know, there's historically there's been, you know, lots of different kinds of people who support the beneficial uses of Psychedelics. Some of those people have had beneficial experiences themselves, or they know somebody who has, um, and they're diehard supporters, and they believe very powerfully in the potential of these drugs, and they don't believe that clinical research, um, or working with the federal government, or um, accepting funding from mainstream supporters at all ends of the political spectrum, there are people who don't think that that's appropriate. Or, or necessary. There, there are people who believe that we shouldn't be needing to jump through all of these regulatory hoops and to work in this, you know, very, you know, straight edge um, and um, official way. And that psychedelics have kind of a, a, a cultural posterity and that they should be not subject to these, these kinds of investigations. Um, you know, that's not MAPS's assumption you know we we've you know watched the war on drugs and seen that through the political route um, nothing was changing people are still getting incarcerated they're still getting thrown in jail for possession and distribution of these substances they're still schedule 1 it's still hard to do research on it and so maps is absolutely willing to be one of the more conservative voices in the psychedelic movement willing to work with regulators willing to put on a suit and go into congress and try to convince people that you know, let's, let's take a look at these, at these substances, people who, who, who haven't necessarily already had their own beneficial experiences. So I think that's, that's kind of the core, uh, you know, the core mission for MAPS is, is, is jumping through the regulatory hoops, showing that it can be done. And those who, you know, really, truly recognize and support the value of these substances will see what we're doing. We'll, we'll see the strategy, uh, and,
0: um, hopefully will support us. And the flip side of what I was initially asking, I wonder if there's any concern about I don't know if it was for maps or for another organization, but I saw there was some investment from Peter Thiel and there's been some investment from other conservative leaning groups. I wonder if that poses any concerns because they would they're kind of antithetical at times to Uh, What the psychedelic community at the political level would be supportive of so there's obviously a group of people who who argue even if money is going to something good if it's coming from an arguably bad source then that you know makes the money tainted. Um, Has there been any concern about that? And I don't know if that investment was for MAPS, but I just saw the...
1: Yeah, the the Peter Thiel gift, um, that was to Compass Pathways, or rather I think it was an investment in Compass Pathways, which is a uh, a for-profit that's doing some psilocybin research right now. But MAPS has received um, a a million-dollar gift from uh, the Mercer Family Foundation through uh, Rebecca Mercer. We had some people write to us and say, hey... You know, we've noticed that you've taken, you know, you've accepted a million dollars from a family foundation that is usually associated with much more conservative right-leaning causes, um, was um, a big funder of uh, Trump's election campaign. Um, and some people wrote to us and said, you know, we wish you hadn't taken that money. This money is tainted. Our position on it is that, you know, the gift was given without strings attached actually the only strings attached to it from the Mercer Family Foundation for that million dollars for the phase three research was that it be used for veterans, for U.S. military veterans, which we were going to treat anyway in these phase three trials. And that's a million dollars that the Mercer Family Foundation very easily could have put somewhere else. And so why not accept that money and do something good with it? I don't think we really believe in tainted money, that if we can take that money and we can put it to a good use, then maybe we can transform
0: Especially it. Especially when it doesn't entail that you're you know, coming out in support of anything that these conservative groups are doing. I mean, when it's just pure money going into maps and, and it's just yes. a donation, then it is, in my opinion, my personal opinion, hard to complain about that because that money otherwise was going to sit around and do nothing or it was going to go into something that politically the psychedelic community would probably oppose so the idea that it's going into maps and doing something good it does seem a bit difficult to i mean you didn't come out and say everything that the mercers have done is you know now maps is in support of that
1: no we haven't said that and and we don't believe that you know we um just want this research to happen as, as quickly as possible. And, and this is why, you know, this is one of the benefits of maps being a nonprofit is we don't take investors for the MDMA research or, or anything else right now. So we're not beholden in any way to those who donate to us. Um, they, can take their tax write-offs from the federal government if if they want. We'll send them a tax receipt. But that's the extent of our obligation to our donors. That's, that's very different than um, for-profit investments where where those people are going to be looking for a return.
0: I saw $7.5 million that Maps has received has come from cryptocurrency donations. Yeah. And for putting that into perspective, $47 million that Maps has received overall, I believe. And that's a A pretty substantial portion of maps's financial support oh tremendous why do you think the the cryptocurrency and bitcoin primarily community has been so supportive of what maps is doing i mean obviously there's probably some political overlap in the sense of a focus on freedom and not having the government stand in the way of of what people want to do which would be relevant to people with Bitcoin and you know, but why do you think that support is so, so substantial?
1: Well, I think that, I think you just hit the nail on the head right there is, is, um, there's, um, you know, within the cryptocurrency community, you know, what a lot of people in the cryptocurrency community are trying to do is to destabilize the existing structure and create new systems where people, um, can live. And, um, if, um, psychedelic therapy isn't creating a new system, I don't know what is. So there's there's certainly that um, ethos that they share with um, developing psychedelics. Also, um, at the end of last year um, and the beginning of this year, when a lot of that came in, um, cryptocurrency was seeing a huge, huge spike, um, and and the value just went went way up. So all these people who had been holding on to cryptocurrency suddenly found themselves um, millionaires or or billionaires and wanted to do something with it quickly and we've been accepting cryptocurrency donations um, for for quite a few years in in hopes although without any knowledge that, that, that something like that would happen so that's seven million dollars that's a that's almost a quarter um, or a little bit over a quarter of our funding needs for the phase three trials which were about 27 million
0: dollars so it's it's really very significant and it was a just a total surprise. And there seems to be a bit of overlap across the decades between people that are forward leaning on technology, whether it's activists or entrepreneurs and people who support or are interested in psychedelics. There's a whole topic of Silicon Valley and and how interested people in that area of business are in psychedelics. And I mean, it might be overblown to some extent, but there's probably more support for psychedelics in that corner of the world than there is in the middle of Iowa. And I don't know why that is. It could have just been because... Historically, a lot of these tech ventures were popping up in the same area as psychedelics were popular. And there was just that social contagion as a result. And people just were being exposed to tech and to psychedelics for whatever reason. There's been a long running interest in psychedelics from that community. So at least now that it can be turned into money pretty easily for something like maps, it's, it's encouraging to see that much support from people who've invested wisely or just happen to have some Bitcoin that Suddenly blew up in value, but they're turning it into yeah, donations yeah. for something positive. Yeah,
1: we're seeing the creation of a new market. It's a, it's it's a new it's a whole new economy, a whole new industry. You know, it's kind of hard. It's almost hard to say the words "psychedelic industry," <laughs> um, just because of the countercultural history of psychedelics and the psychedelic community for so long. But there are industries that are also productive, that are mindful of the environment, that are ethically viable, that are sustainable. Think about the solar industry. You know, I think about the solar industry or the healthcare, you know, that, um, well, I mean, healthcare industry is kind of hard too, but, but, you know, the, doing good work. its it, Just because it's an industry doesn't mean that it's it's taking advantage of, of of people. So I think that was a major motivation of the cryptocurrency donations and it's also a motivator for those in Silicon Valley who support psychedelic research is that we're seeing a new field open up where there's going to be jobs, there's going to be income, there's going to be production of value, there's going to be products and services in the form of mental health treatments and mental health clinics where these services are available. There's going to be trainings and um, education uh, programs, universities, colleges. There's going to be just a million ways that people can generate their livelihoods and also help people within the psychedelic space. And uh, the, the cryptocurrency community, Silicon Valley, they're always very excited about creating new markets, creating new places where investment can result in some kind of improvement of the human situation. And I think that's what the new field of psychedelic therapy is 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 doing. And in the near future, we're going to see a lot more professional opportunities in that space. And maybe we can pour some of these resources that our planet is generating into doing some good.
0: Given how many things are going to spin out from this research and from the work of MAPS, there's a bit that people will probably want to follow in the coming years from MAPS and also hopefully financially support. So to wrap up this episode how can people learn more about what maps is doing and follow where things are headed and then how can people support whether it's just sharing stuff online and sort of spreading education and awareness or financially supporting yeah
1: thank you um thanks seth you know Everything from a dollar to five million dollars helps a lot. That's how we've funded these trials. Literally everything from a dollar to five million dollars. That's the range of donations. Shares, certainly we maintain a super active presence on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, everything. We share all of our new content, research results there. You know, and, and, and talk to your friends and family. What I do every day is try to create educational material that can be shared with family and friends who are skeptical of psychedelic research and of psychedelic harm reduction. So please share what we've got. We've got magazines and brochures and, um, you know, reach out to us. We're at maps.org or ask maps at maps.org or just reach out to me directly. I'm brad at maps.org. Right now we have a uh, fundraising campaign going on, a crowdfunding campaign happening for the Zendo Project at zendoproject.org. We're going towards our stretch goal. We've actually already raised $70,000 the first few weeks to expand our our, our psychedelic peer support services at Burning Man and other events this year and to help people out that way. So that would be a great way to help out right now, either sharing that campaign or just just checking out the video and learning how to help people who are having
0: difficult psychedelic experiences. That'd be just a huge amount of help. Again, zendoproject.org. It's great to hear how support now readily flows in. And if we were having this conversation in 1995, the work of maps would still be relevant, but the base of support, whether it is just at the social level of people being open to this kind of therapy or at the financial level of people being so willing to give these kinds of donations, you know, just would not be the same scenario a few decades ago. So to hear that something like Zendo, which is even more in the psychedelic community than just the medical side of things, to hear that that can raise in a fairly short period of time, $70,000, it makes thinking about what the 2020s will bring for psychedelics at the legalization level or at at least at the medical level makes one really hopeful for what we'll see and maps is really one of the main organizations doing all that work in my opinion they deserve a lot of support so thank you for coming on and sharing this information hopefully can get some other people from maps on in the future but this conversation was nice and i'll include all the links to maps social media and website and donation stuff in the description so thank you for coming on
1: amazing thank you so much seth for getting the word out you're doing amazing work with the drug classroom